All right, finishing up that first sheet, um, we, we did number eight. So number nine, uh, Justin and other early Christians stressed a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament, believing that all scripture testified that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John and says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but it is they that bear witness to me. After his resurrection, he meets two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says the beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So according to Jesus, how much of the Bible is about Jesus? All of it. It It all bears witness to him. And so Justin, uh, throughout his dialogue with Trypho, uh, you know, obviously is going to pull from prophecy quite a bit. There, there are prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah that talk about the long-awaited Messiah, and he's going to pull from those and try to show how they line up with the historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But on top of that, Justin, Justin is going to take a Christ-centered reading of, of the Old Testament that includes the narratives. He's going to pull from the story of Abraham and Isaac and talk about how the Bible in Genesis 22 anticipates a father that will offer up his only begotten son with whom he is well pleased in order to satisfy the demands of God's law. He'll pull from uh, some of you, especially those of you that went through Old Testament with me, know that there's this mysterious figure in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. And sometimes the angel of the Lord talks as if he is the Lord. It's actually the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. If you read Exodus 3 closely, it's actually the angel of the Lord, according to the book of Numbers, that is in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. But a lot of times the angel of the Lord will talk as if he is the Lord. Samson's parents see the angel of the Lord and worship him. What do angels do in the Bible whenever people try to worship them? Quit it. Yeah, they say stop. The angel of the Lord doesn't. He accepts it. So there's this mysterious figure that in some way is distinct from Yahweh, but he also most definitely speaks and acts as if he is Yahweh. And Justin says, I have the answer. It's Jesus. It's it's Old Testament appearances of God the Son, who is distinct from his father, but is also one with his father, as we'll see a little bit later as we keep on in church history and we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. So Justin will look for Christ, yes, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, but really everywhere in the Old Testament. Where does it point to Christ? Where does it anticipate Christ? Sometimes where does he actually show up, like with the angel of the Lord? Number 10, early Christians concluded that they had a religious identity distinct from Judaism because the only true religion was the one which called people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The only true religion is the religion of Jesus, and the only true people of God are the people who have put their faith in the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus says, if you deny me, you deny him who sent me. But if you accept Jesus, you also accept the one who sent him. So the early Christians believe that Judaism does not lead to salvation. Christianity alone does that. This makes sense of the fact that Paul, in the book of Acts, shares the gospel in synagogues. And in Romans 10, he says, My desire is that my kinsmen will be saved, because I can testify about them that they have a zeal, but not a zeal that's based on knowledge. There are groups of Christians today that seem to believe that Jews, just by being Jews, 
are right with God. Or that there's two plans of salvation, one for Gentiles and one for Jews. And the early Christians read the New Testament, and I would just say that the New Testament teaches that that's wrong. There's one plan of salvation, and that's salvation in Christ. And there's one people of God, and it's those who in the Old Testament anticipated the Messiah who was to come, and in the New Testament believe in the Messiah who has come. One people of God, all saved by faith in the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. The quote at the top of the page is from Justin, where he speaks to Trypho and says, The words are contained in your scriptures, or rather, not yours, but ours. For we believe them, but you, though you read them, do not catch the spirit that's in them. This comes on the heels of Justin quoting a prophecy from Jeremiah that he says anticipates the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and tries to show that Jeremiah's prophecy and the life of Jesus line up. And he says to Trypho, these words are contained in your scriptures. If you accept these scriptures, you should accept Jesus. But then he continues and goes, but they're not really your scriptures. They're ours. They're Christian scriptures because they're about Christ and we believe them. And so... From this first lesson, we see that early Christians have a high view of the Old Testament, but we also see something else that I I think is important for us to recognize as we continue the study of church history. A lot of people can hold this up and say, I believe it. You know, the first two-thirds of it, Judaism holds up and says, I believe it. But for Jesus and for the early Christians, just looking at the Old Testament and saying, I believe it wasn't enough. It didn't matter that you just said, well, I believe the Old Testament. The interpretation of it also mattered. Having the correct interpretation that led you to believe Jesus is the Messiah and led you to faith in him, that mattered too. What we're going to see throughout church history is that there's all kinds of people that we call heretics. They deny the true faith. There are certain ideas of Christianity that are core and essential to Christianity. They'll say, I believe the Bible, but they'll deny those. And just holding up the Bible and saying, well, I believe this, a lot of people can do that. But there's got to be something more there, too. You know, the Pharisees hold up the Bible and say, we believe this. And Jesus says, you think in that you find life, but I tell you, it bears witness to me. Is it good that the Pharisees believe the Old Testament? Yes. But Jesus said they needed something more. They needed a correct understanding of it, a correct interpretation, correct doctrine of it. And without that without them seeing that the scriptures bore witness to him, they wouldn't have life. And so we want to understand these doctrines. We want to understand the scriptures. We don't just want, it's good to believe the scriptures. I'm happy that people do that, but we want to do more than that. We want to rightly understand and interpret them as well. Let's flip over to the second page. Very eye-catching title, probably. Firstborn son of the devil. We'll talk about that quote in a moment. Uh, Number one on this page, the early church, uh, this is basically a review of of the lesson we just finished. The early church had originally been tempted to remain practically Jewish or to revert to Judaism. Now, the second struggle of Christianity. The first one is, what's our relationship to Judaism? But now, a second struggle, now they would be tempted to overstate the distinction between Christianity and Judaism. The first struggle was uh, this temptation to revert back to Judaism. The second struggle is the struggle uh, where, where there's going to be a group of people in the church that want to push that distinction too far. Right? 
The person that we're focusing on in this lesson, unfortunately, uh, number two, Marcion. Marcion is a very early Christian. He's born in 85 and dies around 160. Marcion rejected the entire Old Testament and much of the New Testament scriptures because they were, in his opinion, too Jewish. Marcion really likes that statement we read in the last lesson from John chapter 8. You are sons of your father, the devil. Who does Jesus address that towards? Pharisees. Pharisees. Who are? Jewish. Jewish. All right. Marcion's going to stretch that way further than what is appropriate. All right. He's going to stretch that way further than what is appropriate. Marcion, you could call him an anti-Semite. He doesn't like Jews. And he's going to take that text and is going to say, well, well, Jesus looked at a group of Jews and said, you're sons of your father, the devil. All right. Uh, Who do Jews think that they're worshiping? Well, they think they're worshiping Yahweh of the Old Testament. And then he's going to make this equation. Jesus says to the Jews, you're sons of your father, the devil. They think they're sons of Yahweh, the Old Testament God. Therefore, Marcion says, Yahweh is the devil. Marcion teaches, number three, Marcion called the Old Testament God the Demiurge, which is a Greek word for the creator. And he equated him with Satan. According to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament is Satan. And again, the move that he's making there is, all right, the Jews are the people of the Old Testament, Jesus said their father was Satan. The Old Testament God that they worship, that they think they're sons of, must therefore be Satan. All right. Let's pause from the outline for a minute. Um, the um, Marcion's view of Christianity works something like this. Unfortunately, well, I'm not going to say unfortunately. We don't have any of Marcion's actual writings. Guess why? Somebody probably burned them all. Yep. Christians decided Marcion was dangerously wrong and burned all of his writings. All right? On the one hand, that's a good thing. Why? Now we don't have a bunch of crazy cult people. Well, we do have a bunch of crazy cult people, <laughs> right? But, but maybe, cult. Yeah, maybe, maybe that... You know, kept Marcion's ideas from spreading. On the other, from a historical perspective, this is really unfortunate. Because the only way that we know anything about Marcion is from his opponents. And think about that for a minute. What are they going to be tempted to do? Over-exaggerate. Over-exaggerate, misrepresent, or maybe they don't quite actually understand what he was getting across. That could happen. Either way, no matter what happened, Marcion was dangerously wrong. We know that that part is true. All right? But um, basically what I want to say here is everything that I want to give you right now about Marcion's view of Christianity, you need to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because do we actually have Marcion telling us what he thinks? No, right? This is, this is based on people telling us what Marcion thought, but they, they weren't friendly towards him. They weren't sympathetic. So um, Marcion, um, there's going to be a, another term that I throw up here uh, that's called Gnosticism. Uh, and, and Marcion was a, a Gnostic, and then I'm going to put this in scare quotes, 
a Gnostic Christian. And um, some people get a little upset that I abbreviate with an X right here. Um, the X is the first letter in Greek of, of the word Christ or Christian. And so whenever I'm writing on the board, just shorthand, I, I might put X, Xion, right? And that's just an abbreviation of, of Christianity or Christian. Um, Marcion was a Gnostic Christian. We're, we're going to talk about what that word means uh, in just a minute. Um, but the way that, that things work for him is something like this. There is a spiritual God. Right? Good so far? Yeah. We agree with Marcy and so far. This spiritual God, though, um, never really intended to create anything. But he's such a powerful life, he's such a powerful source of being that Marcion will say that there were emanations that kind of came off of him. Alright? And the ones that are really close to him are, are pretty great. This is like archangels here and a little bit further down, you would get, you know, the regular types of angels and beings that are totally spiritual, totally spiritual beings. But on down the, the way, as you kind of get further and further away from God, as these emanations go further, you kind of think of a, a pebble that's dropped in a lake and all these ripples come out. As you get further away, these beings start looking less and less like God. The ones right here look a lot like him. They're pure spirit like he is. They're good like he is. But as you get further away, uh, their resemblance to God decreases. And eventually you get to a place where you get this being that he calls the Demiurge. And what did I tell you Demiurge meant? Creator. Yeah, the creator. And the Demiurge, not God, not, not this guy. The Demiurge is the one who creates the world. To the Demiurge, we are going to attribute everything that is physical, everything that is material, everything that you can see and touch and smell and taste, things like that. Non-spiritual things. The Demiurge is the one that creates them. All right? So he's the creator of the world. And again, Marcion is going to equate the Demiurge with Satan. Now, the issue with the Demiurge, uh, well, it's, it's manifold. One of them is he's incredibly prideful. He doesn't realize that he's a, a created being. He thinks he is God. He demands worship. He demands allegiance, and that's what the Old Testament is about. And the worship and allegiance that the Demiurge commands uh, is, is really physical and, and material. Think about the Old Testament. All right? If you're a Jew, one of the biggest things you're going to do is circumcision, which has to do with your body. And then this God is really obsessed, if you read through Leviticus, with what you eat, food. And he wants animal sacrifice and blood, and he, he's really concerned about sex and who you sleep with and who you don't and things like this, right? Everything that he's concerned about is very physical and very material and very fleshly and very worldly. Right? Not really concerned so much with the, with the spiritual things. Now you, as a human being, are in a unique situation. Because you as a human being, uh, are you physical? Yeah, yeah you are. All right? You are physical, but is that all you are? Yeah. No. You also have a spirit, so you're also 
spiritual. All right, there is what we call a dualism. Dual has to do with how many? Two. Two. All right, you're made up of two things, spirit and flesh. Spirit and, and that which is material, physical. The spiritual comes from God. This is, uh, you know, sometimes in this literature you'll find the language, you have a spark of the divine in you. All right? All of this stuff comes from the true God, the spiritual God. Where does all of this stuff come from? Where's your body come from? The demiurge. So is your body good? No. No. Is your spirit good? Yeah. All right? So, So Marcion is teaching a dualism. Your spirit's good, but your body's not. Your body's bad. Gnostic Christians, and again, we'll, we'll talk about what that word Gnostic means in a minute. Marcion is one representative of this camp. But Gnostic Christians, uh, you know, people who hold to this, are going to even go so far as to talk about your body as a prison. What you want to do is you want to liberate your soul. Right. And so, according to Marcion, the Demiurge is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one that made the world. And what has happened in the New Testament is that this God is Jesus. And he appeared in the world to do two things. To strike and kill the Demiurge. Does the New Testament talk about Jesus doing warfare against Satan? It does. So he came to wage war against the Demiurge, strike and kill the Demiurge, And he came to give you salvation. He came to give you uh, a way where this spiritual part of you can make it back to where it's supposed to be with, with the God that made it. And this is through something called gnosis. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And so according to this position, Jesus came to give you secret knowledge that no one else prior to his coming knew. And if you receive this secret knowledge, if you obey this secret knowledge, then one day your spirit can be liberated, not only from your body, but from all of the physical world, and can ascend into heaven and be with God forever. Sound a little bit like Mormonism? Mormonism would... uh, my understanding is it still does value the Old Testament, whereas, uh, you know, Marcion is saying that's basically just a satanic book. Um, but um, maybe there are some, some parallels here. Uh, just the secret knowledge part, mainly. Like yeah. Joseph Smith basically, basically saying that it was secret knowledge that he had. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, yeah. Uh, what is that? The Book of Mormon? Well, Book of Mormon, but... Uh, do what? Uh, Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly don't know a whole, whole lot about, about that stuff. But, um, so the, the uh, if, going back to our outline here, we can look at number four. It said, um, Marcion believed that the true God revealed in the New Testament was Jesus and that he came to defeat the Demiurge, which is what we covered a, a moment ago. Uh, number five is, as well. Uh, the Demiurge was evil and was responsible for the physical world. 
Jesus was the source of everything that was spiritual, and Marcionism taught a or Marcion taught a dualism that saw the body as evil and the soul as good. Right. Uh, and we can take number six off as well. According to Marcion, Jesus came to earth to give secret knowledge called Gnosis. Through his message, a person could escape the evil physical world and could eventually ascend back to the spiritual realm. And then number seven as well, Marcionism was a Christian. And, and I put that in scare quotes because what we're going to see is uh, th- this system. Are there things in this that look very Christian? What are some things in it that, that look Christian? Or, or, or even things that, I mean, I mean, you could go so far as to say that there's a few things in this that we would actually agree with. Do you agree that Jesus came to give you the ability to ascend to heaven one day or something like that? Right. Um, you know, what, uh, what are, what are some other things in this that, you know, we could, we could get on board with. Do what? Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the new Testament, uh, sometimes we'll talk about our sin nature and, and we'll use the word flesh for it. Uh, and, and it even goes so far as to say that, um, the ruler of this present world at times to talk about Satan, you know, him, him exercising some sort of dominion over creation. Let me ask this question though. Is your body bad? God created it. Jesus redeems it. And Christianity teaches the resurrection of the dead. Just as Christ was raised from the dead physically and bodily, guess what will happen to all of us too whenever he returns? Our bodies will be raised and made new, right? So uh, on number seven, Marcionism was a Christian variety of a broader movement called Gnosticism. Uh, There are Christian Christian varieties of Gnosticism and non-Christian varieties. Marcion held to one of the Christian varieties called Gnosticism. Uh, Number eight, where we want to camp out a little bit more. Marcion put together a list of authoritative books that he believed should govern the life of the church. Do we have a list of authoritative books that govern the life of the church? Yes. How many? 66. 66 if you're Protestant. How many does the Catholic Church use? No, 73. And if you're Eastern Orthodox, it just depends, right? If you're Martin Luther, it's 74, by the way. I don't know if any of you guys know that, but Luther, Luther, um, uh, you know, the Catholic Church has the Apocrypha, which are their seven added books. Uh, Luther didn't see those as being on par with the Old and New Testament, but he still believed that they were useful to be used in services, read and studied. Uh, But he added one more to it as well. So he actually, uh, you know, some people would accuse him of, Luther, you took books out of the Bible. You don't use the Apocrypha. And he says, I actually have more than you guys, you know. Uh, So, um, you know, most most Christian churches, though, 66. Uh, If you're Catholic, 73. Well, on number eight, Marcion put together a list of authoritative books that he believes should govern the life of the church. This list is called Marcion's Canon, spelled like this. If you put two N's in the middle, that's that thing that you would put on a pirate ship and put a ball into and fire it, right? One N um, is, is how we spell this. 
Uh, a canon is, um, it comes from this idea in the ancient world of like a measuring rod. So whenever we say that the Bible is our canon, C-A-N-O-N, whenever we refer to the Bible as the canon or the canon of scripture, what we're saying is these are the books that are authoritative over the life of the church. Everything we think, everything we do is measured by the scriptures. If I want to know the difference between good and evil, where do I look? I look to the canon, which tells me this is good, this is evil. If I, if I want to know, is what I believe true doctrine? I look to the measuring rod, I look to the standard, I look to the canon. Well, Marcion uh, puts together a canon. Ours consists of 66 books. Anybody want to guess how many his is? Probably Less. Very close, but less. Twelve. Twelve. Wow. Eleven or twelve, depends on how you break it up. Here's what they are. And we'll take a little bit of time and think about this together. And I'll write them out here. Alright, here we go. The first one, I love this, this cracks me up. The first one is called the Gospel of Thomas. Marcion. All right, the Gospel of Marcion, uh, the reason I said it's either, you can either count it as 11 or 12, is um, this is a revised version of Luke and Acts. So if you count, you know, Luke and Acts as two separate books, you would get 12. If you count them together, you'll, you'll get 11. Um, but the first one is the Gospel of Marcion. Now, um, why do you think he doesn't put Matthew? This is the only gospel he has. Why do you think he doesn't put Matthew? It's primarily Jewish in background. Yeah, it's very Jewish in background, and it's hard to go a paragraph in Matthew and not have a positive quotation from the Old Testament. All the genealogies. All the genealogies, <laughs> right, right? He doesn't like that. All right? So not Matthew. All right? Uh, Mark, why do you think he wouldn't? Well, maybe a better way to approach it. Out of the four gospel writers, why do you think he's most sympathetic to Luke? Because he wasn't a Gentile. He's a Gentile. Or at least most people have thought throughout church history that he's a Gentile. Uh, There's been some question about that in more recent New Testament studies that I don't particularly find convincing. Uh, but most people have taken Luke to be a Gentile. Mark is a Jew. We know that. He, you know, John Mark in, in the book of Acts. And, and John is definitely very Jewish in the way that he writes in, in the Old Testament usage. Now, Luke is a Gentile. Does the Gospel of Luke in the, in the book of Acts use the Old Testament a lot? It does, which is why we put the fancy word revised up here. It cuts it all out. He's most sympathetic to Luke, but he's going to to cut out a lot of these Old Testament references. Um, The other books, he really likes Paul. Paul doesn't like works of the law. Paul will talk a lot about how you should follow the spirit instead of following the flesh. And, you know, Paul and Marcion mean different things by that. You know, whenever Paul uses negative language about the flesh... He's not denying that God created your body and your body is inherently good. What he is saying is that you have, as a sinner, natural impulses that lead you to do what? Sin. Sin. And don't walk according to them. Right? 
but, but Paul does use this distinction between spirit and flesh, and Marcion feels like he can use that to try to make his point, right? And, and a lot of times, Paul is writing to communities and telling them, don't revert back to Judaism. You know, walk by faith, not by works of the law. And so he thinks that he can use that to show that Paul has a negative view of the Old Testament or something along those lines, which is wrong, but he thinks he can use it that way. So he's going to include Galatians, He's going to include uh, 1 Corinthians. I'm going to abbreviate these. Uh, 2 Corinthians. Romans. 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. So again, you either get 11 or 12, depending on how you break this up. I'll put 11 up there. Right? Why do you think Hebrews doesn't get put on there? Oh, yeah, Hall of Faith, where you're celebrating Old Testament saints. No, those are devil worshippers, Marcion says. All right, uh, you know, you're not going to put it up there because of how uh, all the arguments in Hebrews, it's never that the Old Testament was bad and New Testament is good. It's Moses was good, Jesus is better. The prophets were good, Jesus is better. Well, Marcion can't get on board with that good part. Right? Anything else strike you about this list? Anything missing that you would expect him to have included or anything included that raises your eyebrow? I would expect him to include Revelation. To include Revelation? Yeah. Yeah, I would too, to be quite honest with you. And part of that might be, uh, you know, you're, you're living at a point in history here where, um, you know, these, these books are not necessarily all combined like we have them today they're circulating individually books are very expensive it may be that marcion hasn't even come across revelation yet uh it it could be that uh it could be as well though that in the book of revelation uh john does use a lot of old testament imagery to make his point so he's going to allude i don't know if you guys know this or not but revelation in the book of ezekiel have the exact same structure like if you do an outline of the books they're going to come out pretty pretty similar uh, except Revelation is only half as long. Uh, and so it, it could be something like that where there's some Old Testament references, but honestly, I would have expected him to include that as well. Um, the one that really sticks out like a sore thumb to me is Romans. Because of how positively, uh, you know, Romans chapter 4, uh, Abraham was saved by faith in the Old Testament. Chapter 5, Jesus is a better version of the story of Adam in the Old Testament. Chapter 6 uh, and chapter 7, the law is good. The issue has never been with the law. The issue has always been with your ability to keep it. But God, you know, chapter 7 goes so far as to say God's law is holy, righteous, and good, talking about the Old Testament law. So there's not a little dot, 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 parentheses revised after Romans. Yeah. And maybe he did revise these again. We don't, we don't really know because we don't have documents from Marcion because they all got thrown in the fire, right? Um, but this is Marcion's canon. Interestingly, this is the first attempt in Christian history 
to make a list like this. It's the first attempt that we know of, at least. Right? We could go on an archaeological dig and find a, a new document that shows that Christians did this prior. Um, there's something called the Muratorian Fragment, where early Christians uh, made a, a canon that uh, I think the Muratorian Fragment is only of the New Testament. Uh, they just kind of assumed that we would take everything from the Old Testament over with us. Uh, and the Muratorian Fragment looks similar to ours. There's a couple of exclusions that we include and a couple of things included in it that we don't have. Uh, we, we, well, we have the documents, we just don't include it in the Bible. Uh, but the Muratorian Fragment is, uh, I don't know, a generation, people date it differently, but probably 40 years after Marcion at least. Uh, but this is really the fir- one of the first, if not the first, attempt to make a Christian canon in the history of the church, which leads us to a principle of church history. Heretics are bad, but they're often good for the church. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is Marcion does this, and what does it lead Christians to do? Make a proper canon. canon. So Marcion doing this was a bad thing. He led people astray. He taught false doctrine. But in the long run, God uses it for good. God leads the church to develop a proper listing, a proper canon. And are you glad that the church did that? One of the things I always start off with, by the way, and... You know, I told you I usually have a week that's why do we study church history. The way that I start the first lesson is by flipping to this fancy page in my Bible called the Table of Contents. And I ask my students, when did God inspire that? When did someone hear, thus saith the Lord, in your Bible you shall include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? Did that ever happen? All right. So there are people that will say, you know, whenever I am studying theology, whenever I'm doing theology, I want it to just be me and my Bible. You know, and, and that's not totally a bad thing. But what I like to show people is it's never just you and your Bible. Because have any of you done the work of going through and saying, well, I'm pretty sure 1 Corinthians deserves a place in the Bible, but the shepherd of Hermas doesn't. I'm pretty sure... You know, 1 Timothy belongs in here, but the Apocalypse of John does not. None of you have done that work. You all accept this table of contents as something that is true. And, and you're, you're placing, you know, a little bit of, of, of faith in the people who have come before you. That God's Spirit was guiding people earlier in church history who had these discussions and had these conversations, and that God's Holy Spirit was revealing to them this is what is inspired by God and what is what is not. But the second that you say, you know, I'm just going to go out in my field and I'm going to have a me and my Bible study, well, what I like to point out to people is that's not really what you're doing. Because this didn't just come down out of heaven like, you know, Muhammad's Quran or, or Joseph Smith's tablets or anything like that, Right? All of these books were inspired at different times by different people, and they were eventually compiled by the church. But the church debated. They took time to have conversations and debates and and discussions about what should and should not be there. And so the second that we accept this table of contents as, as something that is good, and that these books in particular are the ones that are authoritative for the church, we're saying we trust the Christians who have come before us. We're standing on their shoulders. 
And I think that that highlights one of the reasons why church history is really important. Don't you want to know what went into those discussions? Don't you want to know why Hebrews wound up being included, even though a lot of people didn't think it should be? And Revelation, and why the Apocalypse of John, and the Apocalypse of Peter, and Shepherd of Hermas was not. You know, this is, this is one of the really good starting points with that. On, on top of that, the Bible was not ever written in English. What languages was it written in? Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. All right, so the second that you say, I'm going to have a me and my Bible study time out in the field, all right, is it really just you and your Bible? Or is there someone who has done the very hard and very good work of translation? But... Translation is never divorced from interpretation. Because we have plenty of words in the, in the English language that could have been used at, at, at certain places, right? Someone was, was translating and said, okay, based on what I'm understanding Paul to say, I'm going to choose this English word rather than this one in order to convey the point that I think Paul's trying to make, all right? All of that to say, all right, you always are doing biblical interpretation and study in community, whether there's someone next to you or not. There are Christians who have come before us that I'm, I'm for one, and very thankful that, that they deliberated about which books to include in the canon and which ones not to, and that they really prayerfully went through that and that God's spirit was at work in them. And I think led them to truth. I trust that God did that. I trust that God gave them wisdom and insight into that. And I'm thankful, as someone who's done a little bit of Greek and Hebrew, that people way better at it than me did the good work of translation. But any time that I'm doing any sort of Bible study, I'm doing it on the shoulders of those who have come before me. And so this is one of the reasons I think it's important to study church history. Study these people who have gone before you, whose shoulders you're standing upon. Have an appreciation for them and the work that they've done, and have enough awareness to, to know why decisions were made that were made, and, and why certain decisions were not made, and, you know, at, at times be able to say, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, something along those lines. This is one of the reasons why this is important. All right, uh, let's get back to the, that's my tangent about church history. I'll, I'll insert those occasionally throughout this uh, to hopefully encourage you to continue this after we're done, right? Uh, number nine, though, uh, several early Christians combated Marcionism slash Gnosticism, but the most significant of all was this guy, Irenaeus. Roughly, his dates are 130 to 202. And he did this in his major work, which is entitled Against Heresies. So Irenaeus wrote Against Heresies. And he considered Marcionism and Gnosticism a heresy. Let's talk about heresy for a second. Um... Let's do an exercise in humility. Who in here has perfect theology? Who believes everything 100% correctly? None of us. A great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, I know that I'm wrong about 20% of my theology, but I just don't know which 20%. I like that quote, right? Is every error a heresy? The answer is no. 
All right, if I misinterpret a statement that Jesus made in the Gospel of Matthew, that doesn't necessarily mean that I've made, uh, you know, I've compromised Christianity or something like that. Heresy is a major error that denies a core aspect of the Christian faith. So if you don't believe in the Trinity, that would be heretical. If you don't believe that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead, there's no meaningful way that you can really be called a Christian. That is so core to Christianity that a person that doesn't believe in the resurrection, you can't really meaningfully call them a Christian, whether they want to be called that or not. Irenaeus thinks that Marcionism is a heresy, number one, because, you know, it rejects two-thirds of the revelation God has ever given to mankind. That's a big reason. But on top of that, um, we said, whenever we put this diagram up here, we have the spiritual God, which is the same as Jesus. And Jesus comes to earth in order to save human beings. And there's a problem with that. He took on flesh, and that kind of uh, throws the whole demiurge being evil, because the demiurge is the God of the material. Very good. Or the creator of the material. So that doesn't really work. Yeah, Christianity teaches an incarnation. Jesus, God became flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He became a man. But flesh is bad. So how can the good spiritual God do that? And the answer of Marcionism, and and more widely this Gnostic movement, is he didn't really. There's a belief that they teach called Docetism. Dose here is the Greek word for appear. And what this teaches is that Jesus appeared human, comma, but he was not really. He seemed human, he looked human, but God did not become a man. So, let's take that a little bit further. If God did not become a man, what can he not do? Die on the cross. So, did Jesus actually die for your sins, according to this belief? No. Let's take it a step further. If he can't die for your sins, what can he not do three days later? Be resurrected. So is there a resurrection? No. All right. In fact, um, there's a Gnostic document that we do still have, unfortunately. Or fortunately. Depends on which perspective we're looking at it from. It's called the Apocalypse of Peter. The Apocalypse of Peter was not actually written by Peter. Uh, Plagiarism today would be Isaac writes something and I think, oh, that's really good. So I erase his name and I put my name on it. Plagiarism in the ancient world was, I write something and I want people to pay attention to it and read it, so I put the name of a famous person on it. So the Apocalypse of Peter was not written by Peter, but someone put his name on it to try to give it a semblance of authority. All right? The Apocalypse of Peter, um, Peter, not really Peter, but the, the character in the, in the book, Peter, uh, is going back through the gospel story, And he is being led by this spiritual being, Jesus, who seemed human at a time, but was not really. And it comes to the point of the crucifixion. And what Peter sees as he looks at the crucifixion is he sees a man suffering and dying on the cross. And there is a ghost-like baby that is on top of the cross laughing. And Peter says, what's that? And spiritual floaty, you know, 
Jesus that's guiding him around points at the guy that's suffering on the cross and says, that was the animal. That was the tool. And Peter says, and what's that on top, the baby? And he says, that was me. In the Apocalypse of Peter, the way that it's explained is that Jesus basically possessed a human body. He didn't become human himself, but he possessed a human body, and that human body was what was crucified and what died. And all the while, Jesus is a creepy baby laughing on top of the cross. Peter later, in this apocalypse, gets to the resurrection. Well, does Jesus come out of the tomb on the third day? No. Instead, what he sees come out of the tomb, and I don't really know what to make of this, but is a singing, dancing cross. Hmm. I think the apocalypse ends at that point. Right? But this belief, it denies the incarnation, meaning it denies that, that, that Jesus was fully man, that God became a man. Therefore, it also denies that you know, God was the one actually on the cross dying for our sins, and it denies the resurrection of Christ three days later. And so Irenaeus, because of these things and because of the rejection of the Old Testament, uh, considers this a heresy and, and writes against it. Number 10, Marcion helps the church. You know, this is our irony here. Heretics that fight against the church wind up in the long run helping it. Marcion helps the church see that it needed to develop a canon of its own, and this process would eventually be completed at the Council of Carthage in 397. This is one of those things where if I had 108 class periods with you guys, we could go into it in a lot more detail, but we probably uh, will not be able to very much this summer, unfortunately. Um, If you ever are interested in this process of how did we get the Bible, uh, there's a New Testament work, I think it's called The Making of the Bible by a guy named Arthur Patsia. It's very good on, on that topic. Uh, and so uh, Patsia is very readable, uh, and so you could learn about the history there. I will make a couple quick comments on it. Number one, a lot of people overstate how difficult that process was for the church. The process took time. There were debates. The majority of the books, everyone just kind of recognized, yeah, those should be scripture, though. There wasn't really any debate over the Old Testament for the most part. The New Testament, most of the books were accepted without any debate. There were a few that really took some deliberation, though. The author of or, uh, the book of Hebrews, people debated whether it belonged in the Bible or not. Who wrote it? We don't know. We still don't know. It wound up being included because it seemed very close to what Paul taught. So maybe it was written by Paul or a disciple. The book of 2 Peter had a few issues getting into the canon as well for some reasons that we won't highlight here. The book of Jude, uh, you know, it took some debate before it was included. 2 and 3 John, there was some debate about those. Revelation, there was a lot of debate about Revelation. And then there were a few books that people kind of questioned whether they belonged. The Apocalypse of Peter, there was a debate whether it should be included. What did they decide? No. No, it contradicts the other Gospels. There was something called the Shepherd of Hermas. I would recommend reading it. I think it's really valuable in some ways. But we know that the guy that wrote it, the shepherd, he wasn't one of the apostles. He lived well after the time of the apostles, and the church had a conviction that the books of the New Testament should either be apostolic or connected to an apostle. Luke wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but Luke was connected to them. 
You know, Paul wound up being commissioned as a, as a new apostle by Jesus on the Damascus Road, and Luke traveled with him. And so even though Luke wasn't one of the 12, he was connected to one of those guys. Mark probably got a lot of his material from Peter. So even though Mark wasn't one of the 12, he was connected to one of those guys. The shepherd, he wasn't connected to any of them. He was after the time of the apostles. And so they said, you know, he... Like, we think that what he wrote was good, we think it was helpful, but should it really be considered in the same way we consider Paul? And, and, and they said no. And so a lot of times these issues, especially people who are skeptical or critical of Christianity, will make it out to be, oh, the Christian church really stressed about what books should be in, and maybe they got it wrong. How do we know? Well, what I always recommend, if you are someone who struggles with that, is look at the books that were not included that some people say, how did, how did the church know? Maybe they should have been included. And read them. And you will understand very quickly why they were not included. Read the Apocalypse of Peter. And you'll see very quickly why it was not included. You know, a lot of it, um, it, it did take time. It was a process. It was officially finished in 397. But I would also make the point that functionally, it was finished a lot earlier than that. You get an official list in 397, but most people were abiding by that list before that. And so, you know, this, again, is not something that we're going to go into a lot of detail on, but I also find that it's something that people stress about quite often, and I think that it, it, it's something you don't need to. People overstate how difficult it was. Was there difficulty? Sure. On a few books. But I think we can also be confident that the church was led by the Spirit and did what was wise in including the books that they included and rejecting the ones that they rejected. Um, the quote at the top of the page is something that a guy named Polycarp uh, said to Marcion. Polycarp was a martyr. Of, uh, he was the bishop of the town of Smyrna, and he was martyred for the Christian faith uh, whenever he was 86 years old. And Polycarp is one of the most fiery people we have ever had in church history, I do believe. He's 86 years old, and he's brought before the emperor. He's in the Colosseum, and the emperor says, we're going to throw you to the wild animals. And he says, bring them on. And then the emperor says, we're going to burn you with fire. And he goes, it's not as bad as the fires you'll burn in. And Polycarp is, is burned at the stake, and the legend is that didn't kill him. Someone had to finally stab him to, to put him out. Uh, we don't really know if that's true or, or not, but um, Polycarp was an incredibly godly person. Um, Marcion sought approval from Polycarp. Marcion is teaching his belief. Polycarp is an influential Christian, and Marcion's idea is, if I can get Polycarp to support me, then the church will support me. So uh, Marcion goes to Polycarp and says, hey, do you know who I am? To which Polycarp responds, yes, I know you very well. You firstborn son of the devil. It's interesting to me that Polycarp really, you know, is going to emphasize the words of Jesus in John, a book that he doesn't even include in his canon, by the way. Marcion. Marcion's going to emphasize the words of Jesus in John 8, which he doesn't include in his canon, you know, where, where he uh, calls the Pharisees the sons of, uh, of, of, of their father, the devil. And Polycarp twists, er, turns it on him. Really, you're rejecting the God of the Bible. You, you know, Jesus said, if you reject me, you, you reject my father who sent me. And it's almost as if Polycarp is saying, you reject Jesus's father. So how could you possibly accept Jesus? And turns it on him. Um, 
Marcionism, of, of course, you know, sort of dies out because it is considered a heresy. Uh, it, it lives on in a unique way today where you'll hear people sometimes say the God of the Old Testament was filled with wrath and just, judgment and anger, but the God of the New Testament is filled with love and mercy and just seems so much better. Um, you three that had Old Testament with me, you know, a large portion of that class was saying that's a really dumb view because the God of the Old Testament is slow to anger and abounding in mercy, right? But this does live on in some ways in in that way. Um, Today's two lessons, though, uh, do highlight the struggle of Christianity. Yeah, Uh, go ahead. What do you think uh, Marcion's motivation for um, creating uh, his own particular uh, viewpoint and canon, what do you think his motivation for all that? Do you think it was a genuine belief, or was he trying to, to, to do it because of uh, a narcissistic view of himself? Like, like why do you think he did this? Yeah, I, that would be easier to answer if we had some of those primary documents. But I would say throughout, just looking at church history as a whole, I think that a lot of the heretics are very genuine. We'll talk about a guy named Arius pretty soon, denied the doctrine of the Trinity. It's very hard to think that Arius was anything but earnest. Uh, he thought he was helping the church, I think. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things uh, in church history that, that we do learn as well, is that a lot of these people are very well-intentioned, but they're very, very wrong. And, um, you know, Satan uh, is a deceiver. And, and we want to, uh, you know, guard ourselves against that deception. And, and looking at how the Spirit has moved and worked in the church, I think, is one way that helps us do that. You know, if I ever come to Scripture... And I come up with an idea that no one in the history of the church for 2,000 years has ever held before. Maybe I'm right. But what's more likely? That you're not. That I'm not. Right? I think that this discipline, in a very unique way, teaches us humility. um, Because, you know... What would I be saying at that point? The Holy Spirit revealed this to me and has never revealed this to people for 2,000 years. You know... One thing that I'll say quite often throughout this course is that the study of church history is the study of the Holy Spirit. You can't really separate the study of God's people from from the study of the Spirit. You know, we study this discipline because we believe, you know, has the church always been perfect? Has the church gotten things wrong? Well, yeah. But I also think that in this discipline, we see how the Spirit has been at work and how he has guided and preserved, even in the midst of errors, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think that Marcion was probably a genuine person, um, but I think you're right. He probably did have an ego problem. He probably should have listened to some of these people that were uh, calling him to repentance and calling him to change. And he probably should have asked the question, you know, why is it uh, that God is supposedly revealing this truth to me and not to anyone else? You know, uh, we, we should do our theology in community, I think. There are times to stand in the minority. We'll talk about a guy named Athanasius who stood against the world, right? Um, but, I mean, what, what is more often the case? How many times in world history has someone had to stand against the world for truth? It happens, Right? Uh, You know, Athanasius does that. I would say Martin Luther is someone who who does that. Um, The majority is not always right, but I do think that this study calls us to humility and calls us to consider what is the Spirit teaching the church as a whole? What has the church, as 
you know, two millennia of Christians have read this book. What ideas have they come up with? And if I'm, if I'm coming up with something totally new and novel that's contradicting everything that's gone before me, uh, I think humility, it doesn't necessarily tell me I'm wrong, because I could be right. But it does cause me to really carefully consider, you know, at, at that point. You know, do I really want to go against all of these guys, right? Um, you know, some people will say, do you hold to scripture or to tradition? I think that that's the wrong way of approaching that, right? I think that scripture is the highest and most ultimate authority. You know, if scripture says something and someone in church history says something different, what should we go with? Scripture. scripture. But do I really want to interpret the scripture in a way totally different from the way that the church has always done it either? Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that that's necessarily healthy or right. And what we're going to see is that um, heretics like lone wolf Christianity. Uh, you know, they, uh, they're, they're going to have a pretty low view of the church. They're, they're going to be people who I think really do give in to arrogance. And uh, I think that it's a warning against, uh, against that type of mentality for us as we study this discipline. Um, these two lessons, though, do highlight the struggle of Christianity to relate well to Judaism uh, and to relate to the Old Testament. Um, but hopefully that gives us a little bit of a path forward about how we ought to understand the Old Testament and do that today. So I'm going to go ahead. Uh,